Well, welcome everybody um, to this uh, recorded session of a discussion uh, that we're hosting uh, with uh, three Hudson Fellows, myself included. Uh, and of course, we're going to be talking about Sudan uh, today. And for uh, those of you who have not been following the news, uh, conflict broke out there between or within the security services on April 15th. So we're now on day six here um, of the fighting and uh, the situation is steadily deteriorating. So we quickly pulled together uh, this panel to discuss uh, some of the issues that should be foremost in American policymakers' minds and, and hopefully are uh, as they grapple with what is a very, very difficult situation. Um, so we're going to be giving you a little bit of background on uh, how we got here in Sudan, uh, what were the proximate causes of the conflicts. Uh, we'll move on to what American national security interests are uh, in, in this conflict. It's half a world away, but it does dramatically affect uh, American national interests. Uh, we'll look a bit at some of the complexities around possibly an evacuation attempt. Uh, we'll try to explicate the uh, principles that policymakers should be bearing in mind as they think, try to think through and make a plan for evacuation um, in a very complex, very violent situation. So my name is Joshua Mazervi. I am uh, a senior fellow at Hudson Institute. I focus on African affairs, uh, mostly great power uh, competition, uh, counterterrorism, and geopolitics. I'm joined uh, by Robert Greenway. He is an adjunct fellow at Hudson Institute. He is the executive director of the Abraham Accords uh, Peace Institute. Uh, he has had a long uh, government service, both in the military as Army Special Operations uh, for years, then uh, eventually on the National Security Council uh, at a senior level where he was uh, heavily involved in American policy towards the Middle East and North Africa. So he knows um, both Sudan well, he knows the American uh, policy scene well, uh, and he understands a lot of the complications that come with uh, trying to come up with an evacuation plan in a, as I said, a complex and, and violent setting. Uh, then we'll go to James Barnett. Uh, he goes by Jake, so I'll call him Jake throughout, the, throughout this uh, recording. Uh, Jake um, is a research fellow uh, with Hudson. He is based in Lagos, Nigeria, um, he, uh, where he is also a research fellow with the Center for Democracy and Development. Uh, he is a Fulbright scholar. He was also a uh, Boren fellow uh, in Tanzania. And so he, um, in addition to his West Africa work, he follows East Africa closely. Um, and so we'll, we'll be able to uh, give us his insights. So uh, I'm gonna dive right in here. We're gonna try to keep this conversational um, and uh, we have a hard stop uh, uh, at 11 um, after 45 minutes. So like I said, I'll, I'll try to keep this quick. So uh, Jake, let's start with you. Um, can you give us briefly, because uh, we could talk for hours just on this one element, but briefly, what's going on here? Who are the major players? How did we get here? What's the background? Yeah, thanks so much, Josh, uh, for having me, and, and great to be on with you, uh, Rob, as well. Yeah, I mean, the I think that the the groundwork for this uh, for for this conflict that we're seeing now was really kind of has been laid over the preceding decades uh, and has really been escalating in recent years and recent months in a way that 
I think one of the unfortunate aspects of the conflict we're seeing now is that it was very, in many ways, it was quite predictable. People had been warning about this, um, something, you know, along these lines as in a clash between the security forces since the uh, kind of longtime strongman Omar al-Bashir was overthrown in 2019. In recent, uh, in recent months, um, kind of particularly since February, there had again been escalating signs that, you know, particularly these two blocks within the security sector, the Army or the Sudan Armed Forces and then the RSF, that's the rapid support forces, kind of paramilitary militias, that they were increasingly at loggerheads. And I think to understand uh, kind of briefly, right, and in, in, um, kind of recognition of our limited time, to, to understand some of the, the background to how we got here, it's important to look at the uh, the 30-year reign of, of, of Omar al-Bashir, who himself came to power in 1989 through a coup d'etat. He came, you know, he rose up through, through the ranks of the military forces, uh, became president when he was a colonel by overthrowing a, another military leader. And so Omar al-Bashir came to office, you know, very much uh, kind of aware of the risks of coups and fracturing within his own security sector and kind of the precarity of his own position as president. And part of the reason that you can, you know, the, the reason for um, Bashir's longevity of a 30-year rule is that he played off political divisions within the security sector very well, including by kind of creating them artificially. And he also played a, a, a kind of on a separate point, he played some of the regional divisions within the Horn of Africa and the Middle East pretty, pretty savvily for about 30 years, although it eventually proved his downfall. But focusing on that first element, this kind of divisions within the security sector, essentially when the uh, war started kicking off, the conflict in Darfur started kicking off in you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, um, in which, of course, you know, the Sudanese government was in, indicted by the ICC for crimes against humanity. It was they called it a counterinsurgency campaign, but it was a, an incredibly brutal, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, campaign against the civilian population that many labeled genocide. So there were these these militia forces in Darfur known as the Janjaweed, uh, recruited primarily from from what were called the Arab tribes. And so after, you know, after several years of kind of this conflict brewing, Bashir realized that these kind of Janjaweed militias were almost a counterweight to his own army that he'd also been deploying in Darfur and kind of aware of always the, the risk uh, of, of a possible coup d'etat against his own uh, his own regime from within the armed forces. He kind of took what were then some very disorganized state backed militias and kind of created them into a more formal paramilitary structure called the Rapid Support Forces. And this uh, this one commander, um, you know, I think it can be very accurately described as as a warlord, Mohammed um, Hamdan Dagolo, also known as Hameti. He became the commander of these rapid support forces, and you know, Bashir would even refer to this guy kind of jokingly as my protector, because the idea was that he was kind of taking this man who had very much been an outsider, who did not have the proper military education, who did not come from the core of the country, but from a kind of rural periphery. He was taking this outsider and boosting him and his and his men up to kind of a level that was increasingly equal with that of the military. And that, of course, caused some resentments. Then there was also the police, the intelligence services. And for several years, essentially, Bashir was playing these different forces against each other. In 2019, uh, there were a series of popular protests against the Bashir regime, particularly uh, with regards to, to rising um, bread prices, rising cost of living. There have been several protests uh, in previous years, but the ones that started in December 2018, then went to April 2019, were very intense. And so eventually the security agencies, even though there were kind of all these rivalries among them, they decided to, to team up and overthrow Bashir because they saw that he is, his own tenure wasn't going to last very long. And so that takes us into this kind of four-year period of what can be called kind of 
generally the the transition within Sudan, although at many points the transition has kind of has been effectively stalled, unfortunately. And essentially the the security agencies who had teamed up to overthrow Bashir, there was a lot of international pressure on them to hand over power to a civilian government. There was a massacre very early on in the transition that I think showed a lot of analysts and observers that many of these military forces, both the, the Sudan armed forces, but also the RSF, were not interested in handing over power to a civilian government. And kind of to 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 speed up and you know rather than going through the full kind of four-year transition period the the rsf and the military kind of alternated between being you know rivals and and allies they were allies insofar as when push came to shove they would team up together to try to keep civilians out of government and they did this in late 2021 when they launched a coup against the uh kind of the, the interim civilian technocratic-led government so they teamed up for that and um you know because they had this common interest which is that they didn't want the the power of the security sector to be threatened by civilian governance but at the same time both of these sides were increasingly suspicious of each other i mean hamedzi proved to be a very savvy political player he uh kind of played the transition very well positioning himself as an outsider and therefore an opponent not only of the former bashir regime but also to some extent of the military with a lot of sudanese getting frustrated with the uh kind of the coup and the military governance that was happening um, and it helped that the head of the Sudan Armed Forces was the nominal head of the Sudanese interim government, and Hameti was number two. So you had this weird dynamic where Hameti, even though he was very much part of the problem, was also positioning himself as kind of an alternative power center to the military, one with, if you will, kind of a bit more of a populist base. But the military, meanwhile, was very concerned about the growing influence of the RSF, the growing influence of Hameti. Uh, the RSF had become very rich over the years both because of their work in Darfur, they'd been kind of the preferred, uh, Bashir's preferred enforcers in that region. And so they've gotten access to lucrative uh, gold mining there that they were able to smuggle out of the country. They also served as mercenaries in Yemen, to some extent in Libya. Um, so they were kind of tapping into all these transnational uh, kind of security and illicit smuggling networks and stuff, becoming very rich, buying up a very big arsenal to the point that they were really threatening the Sudan armed forces. And so to kind of quickly wrap up, Essentially, within the past few months, you've had uh, the international community pushing the, you know, what they would call the military, or the security sector, to try to hand over to a civilian government um, and to try to kind of uh, uh, reignite that process of the political transition. But the problem is that the military or the security sector is not a unified block. You can't just look at it as, you know, the guys with the guns versus the civilians. And so one of the big outstanding questions was, what's the future going to be of these two essentially parallel armies, the formal Sudan Armed Forces and then the RSF? And also keep in mind that there are a lot of kind of cultural differences. The Sudan Armed Forces, the officer class particularly, is recruited more from kind of the Nile regions, the center of the country. They have formal military training. They have this kind of proud tradition that they see themselves as being a formal kind of military officer class, whereas the RSF are seen as, you know, these camel herders from the Western hinterlands. They don't have proper military training. They're just these kind of ruthless, you know, SOBs who, who have kind of gotten lucky and played their cards right. And so they shouldn't even be our equals. That's kind of the, the thinking among a lot of these generals. And so essentially within the past few months, starting really in February, as I, as I began um, my, my little spiel with, there was a lot of tension kind of brewing where it was very clear that the RSF was kind of move, starting to move in forces closer to Khartoum, that the Sudan armed forces was going on high, were going on higher alert. Um, and, and, you know, that part of it was because of this debate that was kind of being brokered by the international community of what is the future of the RSF? 
The Sudan Armed Forces wanted them to integrate into the military very quickly within a two-year span. Um, Hamedti saw that and knew that this would essentially mean that all of his wealth, all of his power, his men would be subordinate to the military and that maybe you know, his own personal fortune then and his own personal uh, future uh, was, was then at risk because he could easily be, you know, if he doesn't have his army, he can easily be arrested for, for any number of the crimes he's committed. And so the tension started brewing and it kind of became this, this uh, very serious standoff. And then eventually, yeah, I mean, it right, it was just Saturday. And it's crazy how quickly it's escalated in just six days. Um, but it was just on Saturday that the first shots were finally fired in, in Khartoum. Um, and again, this is something that Sudanese people on the ground have been reporting this for, for several months, you know, more checkpoints. We know who the RSF checkpoints are. We see these guys from Darfur being brought in. We know that the military is also stocking up on their weapons. So it was all kind of very predictable. Um, and I think I think there's a lot more to say about this, but I'm, I'm very curious to hear my colleague Rob's assessment. So turn it over to him. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Jake. Um, yeah, that was that was a great background. Uh, I think you hit the major points there. And uh, these, as you pointed out, these intra security services tensions have been brewing for a long time. There, there was even armed reports of armed clashes way back in the Darfur days between um, the SAF and, and RSF, even though uh, SAF was getting up to its own uh, sort of genocidal activities. There were still uh, tensions um, between the RSF and SAF way back, um, you know, two decades ago. And then even you mentioned the Khartoum massacre of protesters or reports that RSF, um, you know, barricaded uh, some SAF officers in barracks um, when they were getting ready to to launch uh, this this massacre. So, yeah, these tensions have been brewing. Uh, and now they've boiled over. So, so let's bring in Rob here. Um, Rob, can you lay out for us, uh, let's start with American national interests in Sudan, okay? It's half a world away, but why does this, Ameri let, let's start with why does this matter to Americans? Thanks, uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. Appreciate uh, Jake's overview and summary of how we got here um, and it's hard to improve on it. I think it's always right to start with what U.S. vital interests are. I, I identify three interests uh, that, in my estimation, are vital to the U.S., and then three contributing factors, which are equally, in some ways, important. The first is safeguarding strategic lines of communication. The Red Sea, uh, of which Sudan has a significant coastline, constitutes 12% of global trade and a trillion U.S. dollars annually. There are also 15 undersea cables that follow the same pattern. It's 25% of the world's internet traffic. The last thing I think we want to do is see a disruption of that because the global economy is, is uh, so dependent upon it and our adversaries and competitors equally would like to obtain influence over it. So I think Sudan matters strategically to the United States in that sense. Second, I would say we have a combating terrorism objective. Previously under Bashir, the country was listed on the, and deservedly listed as a state sponsor of terrorism that famously provided refuge to Osama bin Laden and many other terrorist groups. And I think uh, migrating it uh, was a significant achievement and it was on that trajectory where we removed them from the state sponsor of terrorists in the previous administration and incorporated them within the Abraham Accords framework and normalized diplomatic relations with Israel, reversing the three famous no's from 1967 in Khartoum and the Arab League. So combating terrorism and preventing Sudan from once again becoming a sanctuary, a safe haven for global terrorists is also equally vital to the United States. I would say the third would be preventing a humanitarian crisis, which uh, Sudan unfortunately is all too close to before the escalation and hostilities. And that I think is reversible, uh, but certainly preventable. And that would be the third 
uh, a U.S. interest in my judgment. The three contributing factors I would say is influence. After the debacle in Kabul, after what happened in Benghazi a few years ago, and we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of uh, our withdrawal after the terrorist bombing of the U.S. Embassy barracks in Beirut, the U.S. can ill afford to lose the credibility and evacuate another U.S. diplomatic facility because of a conflict. Uh, second, I would say, again, uh, the, the fact that Sudan was on a trajectory to normalize diplomatic relations with Israel, become integrated into the global uh, community of nations. I think that was an important trajectory. It's vital to get back to it. If a U.S.-led effort to do that fails and stumbles, uh, I think we lose a tremendous amount of credibility, and that would be uh, poorly timed. The last contributing factor is that China and Russia want to expand their influence in the region and are, are certainly eager to fill the void. China has a port already in Djibouti to the south, but Port Sudan would be a huge feather in their cap uh, and a great addition to the Belt and Road Initiative, and it would extend Chinese predatory practices and malign influence. Likewise, Russia has long sought uh, access to uh, Port Sudan uh, and continues, I think, to exploit it and its uh, Wagner presence, which in many ways the RSF uh, relationship with, I think, is something we all watch very carefully. So in my judgment, those are the three vital interests and the three contributing factors, why the United States is and should be interested in what happens in Sudan. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, that was great. Um, yeah, I'm struck the sensitive region that Sudan is in. Uh, that alone makes this, um, uh, should make it front of mind for American policymakers. It's right across the Red Sea from Saudi Arabia, of course. Uh, it has 500 some odd miles uh, of coastline, as you mentioned, on the Red Sea. Uh, and then this history of terrorism, you know, you mentioned Osama bin Laden, but Sudan was also a, a strong friend of Iran for many years and um, under Bashir and Iran smuggled weapons uh, through Sudan. They uh, built a, an ammo factory. So this has been a, a, pro a, a problem country for the United States for decades. And then there was this moment of hope in 2019 uh, when the popular uprising um, toppled Bashir and then also forced the, the coup leaders to make some concessions to, to civilians and bring them into the government. Now, we've, we've seen how that's gone. Um, you know, those, those hopes seem dead and buried for now, which is, which is part of the tragedy here. Um, Sudan, as you mentioned, had a real chance to enter the community of nations and, um, you know, solidify, um, you know, its economy and, and everything else. And, but now we're, we're, rapidly headed towards a civil war, I think. Um, so Rob, uh, lay out for us, uh, we want to talk about American citizens um, in Sudan. Um, there's, there's lots of issues here, but, but right now the US government needs to be focused on how do you protect Americans in Sudan. Uh, there may be as many as 16,000. Um, I just uh, heard that estimate um, in the country. That's a lot um, of, of Americans. A lot of them are probably dual nationals. Um, what is the current situation uh, militarily, right, um, that makes it, that makes American citizens, at, that puts them at risk and also makes it very difficult to plan and execute an evacuation? Sure. And so since Saturday, uh, when the fighting uh, became, I think, um, most acute and the situation deteriorated in Khartoum as well as peripheral regions, most of the fighting has since been around the army headquarters. And I think the RSF intent was to perform a sort of surgical operation to decapitate 
uh, Burhan and uh, the Sudanese armed forces by going after the headquarters. It didn't succeed, but uh, the headquarters is uh, strategically located next to the international airport. And if you want to introduce aid and assistance and evacuate personnel, the airport is the easiest way to do it because Khartoum lies in the middle of the country. And so that complicates our, uh, our ability and our flexibility and those of other nations. Uh, secondly, I would say that uh, while the RSF is distributed, they're, organ they're disorganized, command and control is uh, infamously or notoriously absent. Uh, the Sudanese armed forces uh, maintain largely control over the entries in and out of the city itself. Uh, and for security purposes, it makes it difficult to move uh, in any way, shape or form. So civilians have been told to shelter in place. And as you said, there could be as many as 16,000 Americans distributed across Sudan, most likely in Khartoum. But the, the reality is no one knows. Uh, and the last thing I think we can ill afford is not to have accountability of our people because you'll never know who's left behind. And we just experienced this, unfortunately, in Afghanistan. And I don't think uh, we're keen to repeat that. Uh, lastly, I would say uh, that the security situation continues to devolve. The infrastructure has always been fragile in Sudan for a thousand reasons, mostly inherited by 40 years of neglect under Bashir. And so it has always been fragile. And without uh, critical supplies, particularly fuel, the electricity and the telecommunications infrastructure and water, which is in spotty supply in most of uh, Sudan and certainly in Khartoum, could stop. And so those sheltering in place are about to run out of supplies. We just entered into Eid al-Fitr, the end of the Ramadan uh, period, uh, where a ceasefire yet again broke down uh, and was uh, in many ways uh, to provide a window of opportunity, perhaps to get accountability and to consolidate isolated personnel, including Americans, but it has proved not to be the case. And again, because this was predictable, we should have, I think, taken better precautions earlier. But now we are at a point in which we can't introduce critical supplies. We can't uh, organize an evacuation. No one is in charge of the entirety of the security situation. And individuals are not going to be able to shelter in place because they won't have critical supplies in which to do it. And they're certainly unsecure. Uh, accordingly, there have been uh, failed uh, attempts by uh, other nations to evacuate their personnel. But again, for reasons already cited, they've been unable to do it. We should make common cause, I think, to reverse that situation. There has been diplomatic uh, convoys. The U.S. convoy was actually uh, under small arms fire. Uh, the EU aid agency chief was uh, shot, but uh, uh, seems to be recovering. Aid workers uh, have been physically assaulted and raped. And the World Food Program, uh, one of the most viable organizations uh, in Sudan, has lost three of their staff members uh, just since fighting began this weekend. And the situation uh, continues to deteriorate. There are now accordingly some 331 casualties according to Sudan's statistics. The numbers are probably higher and over 3,000 wounded. Uh, the nine hospitals in Khartoum have been hit by artillery. Uh, 16 have been evacuated and so none are functional insofar as we know. And so the situation is dire and we have probably 24 to 48 hours uh, before the situation becomes uh, even more precarious. And so in, uh, in my judgment, we need to first get accountability uh, for our personnel and safeguard them so that we can begin the process of coordinating an evacuation. We need to establish security at evacuation points and along critical infrastructure, including the routes uh, from uh, major consolidation points to points of evacuation. And that is gonna require the introduction of forces uh, almost certainly. And those forces should be staged in close proximity now so that we can preserve our options and our decision space. And I don't know that that's taken place. And it's important to recognize that both from a, 
from a defense standpoint, uh, Sudan sits in AFRICOM nominally, but is closer to uh, the Central Command Area Responsibility. And so it's sort of at the dividing line between, uh, between areas of responsibility. And assets now are at probably the lowest they've been in many decades. So we have less flexibility than we're used to. And second, I think we can uh, establish command and control now between state aid, defense, intel community, uh, and international service providers to prepare and stage resources for international humanitarian assistance. As we already knew the situation is precarious, now is the time to assemble the resources so that we can introduce them to alleviate the suffering that has already begun. And the situation wasn't good to begin with. And lastly, I think because the situation was foreseeable, it could have been anticipated. In many ways, it was accelerated by the political framework agreement. I think we need to look to new leadership to get us out of this predicament. Um, and I think uh, that is warranted under the circumstances. And then also, I think uh, leveraging our international partners, particularly Egypt, UAE, Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, others in Europe and Asia, I think also can make common cause in order to undertake a concerted effort to evacuate our personnel. Uh, to arbitrate the conflict to the best extent that we can, which would include a ceasefire to do that, and then the provision of humanitarian uh, resources, which needs to happen. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, the challenges are, are daunting here. Um, one more quick question for you, and then I want to bring in Jake um, on some of the regional dynamics that, that are affecting all of this. Um, realistically, in your assessment, how quickly can the U.S. get a um, a plan together and an operation underway to evacuate. Now, I know some of this is unknown, right? We don't know how much planning has been done so far and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, this is a, I keep coming back to this, this is a hugely complex and difficult operation, which will take a lot of planning. Um, how quickly, uh, I mean, are we talking about something that we're not realistically going to be able to see for another week? Or is it something that, okay, maybe in the next couple of days, we might see something? What's your assessment on this? Well, it's a great question. Um, and it's vital. First, I'd say that plans are required, right? So plans, base plans are required for all of our diplomatic facilities um, and our presence overseas. So there is a plan uh, to evacuate personnel in crisis that it can be adapted to the environment. Normally those plans um, uh, are predicated on having a point in which you can exfiltrate or evacuate um, non-essential or essential personnel uh, in varying security environments. As I said earlier, uh, one of the most critical resources here is the international airport, which is now one of the areas of the most intense fighting is likely to remain so. And I believe the, the Sudanese armed forces goal is to clear out the RSF and around the airport as soon as practical. And that would help us, I think, establish security at the airfield so that we can begin the evacuation process. So I think we have a plan in place in terms of the assets and resources required to do it. Uh, if the, our partners uh, on the ground in Sudan, if the government and the Sudanese armed forces don't obtain uh, uh, a point in which they can provide security for the point of evacuation and the routes to them, uh, then we're gonna have to introduce those forces. Um, the, the, the disposition of U.S. forces and the ability to respond uh, comes in a couple of flavors. We can introduce forces very, very quickly uh, in hours or days, uh, but substantial reinforcements uh, will take uh, upwards of potentially a week to get there, uh, depending on where some of our offshore and afloat assets reside. So hopefully those are in route now, uh, and those two will be able to ensure that we can put a plan together, but both of which require on the ground security. But as I said, there's a balance now between 
Those that are sheltering place for the moment, uh, secure but running out of supplies and unprotected, and uh, the the situation on the ground, which is going to have to be coordinated with local uh, armed groups, either militias or the Sudanese armed forces. So we're going to probably have to introduce U.S. forces in order to execute this if the situation continues to deteriorate, and I suspect it will. Yeah, and one of the one of the scary elements of this scenario, and you you referenced this earlier in your comments, is what is the command and control situation. Um, even if uh, the senior leadership of these armed forces sends, uh, you know, orders down the chain of command, will anybody listen to them? Uh, or will, do they have the capacity to disseminate these orders widely enough for um, people to know what they're supposed to do? I think this is perhaps a particular concern with the RSF because this is essentially a militia. It's a glorified militia. Um, and there's already been reports of them rampaging through various areas, looting, uh, assaulting civilians, behaving uh, in a way that, that you would hope a professional military would not. Um, so, yeah, this uh, yet another complication here that, that you'd already referenced. OK, um, Jake, let's let's talk about some of the regional players here, because, again, Rob has already talked about a few of them. You know, he's referenced a couple countries you did. Um, I think uh, probably I did. So that that demonstrates how important uh, the region is here um, to what's going on. So who. Um, you know, what are the prospects for the region to play a constructive role here? Who has influence with the various forces? Who might the U.S. be talking with to try to bring a, about a humanitarian ceasefire to facilitate an evacuation? And then even beyond that, something longer term. Yeah, thanks, Josh. I mean, as you know, the regional dimensions here are, are very important. Um, they played a role, uh, you know, to some extent in the toppling of Omar al-Bashir in 2019. You know, there are reports that the coup plotters, uh, you know, both Burhan, the head of the Sudanese intelligence, and even, you know, Hamedti, that they were in contact with officials in, in, in Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, and Cairo, kind of in the lead up to the, uh, to the coup. And so I think that those three countries, right, Saudi, UAE, and Egypt, have um, you know historically played a, a pretty significant role in Sudan in kind of the later years of the Bashir era. I mean, Egypt obviously <laughs> going back millennia. Um, but uh, but then you know since 2019, uh, those three countries have definitely kind of uh, kind of worked very hard to maintain their influence in the country. And I think that what we've seen is a bit of a bifurcation in recent years with the uh, kind of Egypt really putting its weight behind. The Sudan Armed Forces, um, you know, General Al-Burhan, the, the titular uh, leader of Sudan and, and the Sudanese Armed Forces, uh, trained in Egypt. He also trained in Jordan, so he has very good connections with some of those kind of older Arab militaries, whereas the UAE has some, you know, very close ties with Hamedti. Hamedti has personal wealth in the UAE. Um, you know, he worked or he sent his, his men over to fight in Yemen under uh, Emirati control. There are a lot of, there have been a lot of interesting reports about some of the, the gold smuggling out of Darfur kind of going through Dubai, which is a big clearinghouse for, for illicit gold. Um, so that's, you know, when, when the war broke out uh, on Saturday, I mean, already it was kind of, you know, the worst case scenario of there was serious heavy fighting in, in Khartoum, right? You had air, air, you know, jets, fighter planes kind of strafing buildings in the capital city, which is something that for all of the violence that Sudan has experienced in, in its recent history, you know, Khartoum had not experienced like intense urban warfare like that. So already this was a very serious issue. And, you know, kind of the, I think the immediate reaction of a lot of analysts and observers beyond the, of course, the horror of what was already happening is this fear of like, 
this could spread so quickly. And already by the end of the first day, we were seeing some indications of that, where there have been Egyptian forces, particularly some Air Force units, uh, at certain airfields in Sudan that are there as part of this arrangement between the, uh, you know, the transitional military government and Cairo. And uh, the RSF actually, and I think we now know with some of the recent reporting, they had intentionally been sending their forces out there in the days leading up to the combat to actually surround some of those airfields because they really wanted, they, they realized that one of the, the SAF's advantage was the air power of Egyptian jets, Egyptian pilots. And so they came in to try to neutralize that early on, as well as attacking the general command, um, as Rob noted. So already from, from day one, there are, you know, there are signs that the Egyptians are involved in this. Since then, there have been reports that the Egyptians have, in fact, um, you know, and, and thankfully, the, the situation with those prisoners, the Egyptians who were captured, it seems to have, you know, not sparked the major kind of casus belli that it might have been. I think the RSF was careful not to, you know, publicly harm any of these, these soldiers or whatever. But, you know, subsequent reports have shown that the Egyptians are uh, providing air support and logistical support to the SAF. And on the same side for, um, you know, with Hamedti, the, the Sunni's armed forces have kind of uh, kind of very coyly accused, you know, two countries, one of which to the west of Sudan is supporting the RSF. We know that the the, the forces to the west, it's uh, Khalifa Haftar, the uh, the Libyan warlord, who again has historically been backed, um, you know, by the Emiratis and also by the Russians. And there's now been a report that he sent over uh, one, you know, plane of supplies to support the RSF. So already you have Egypt and a powerful Libyan leader kind of involved in it. Um, to Sudan's west, you have the Chadian government, which is actually, despite some of Hamedti's connections to Chad, so far they've actually kind of sided more with the SAF. They've they've stopped, uh, they arrested or detained a number of RSF forces on the border. I think moving forward, you know, if there is a bit of a glimmer of hope, I think that it would be to some extent in you know the kind of lopsided backing uh, and or you know kind of the lopsidedness of, of which international powers are backing whom within Sudan. And I think that, you know, for all the talk of Hameti's connections with the UAE, I think one thing, you know, we can say about the Emiratis in Africa, and there's a lot to, you know, this kind of goes both ways, both as a criticism, but also potentially, a, you know, an avenue for, for some progress here is that the Emiratis are quite practical. And I think what they saw with their experience in Libya backing Haftar was that, you know, it's backing kind of a, a, an upstart warlord can be a risky endeavor. And so I think that what we see now is that Hameti doesn't, you know, he lacks some of the serious capacity and capabilities that the SAF has. He doesn't have air power. They've managed to shoot down a few SAF helicopters. That's what kind of the open source shows. But he doesn't have his own air force. There have been reports that they, um, he's even running out of ammunition, which is one of the reasons that he was getting resupplied from Libya. So, you know, with the Eid holiday coming up, there's maybe some hope that uh, kind of the international powers here can, can play a role to try to mediate and that would be both, you know, kind of the constructive, proactive, positive role of the powers, you know, whether it's Saudi, whether it's, uh, you know, the U.S. and European countries kind of coming together and saying, look, you guys need to hash out an arrangement. But also it can it can come of the form of, you know, someone like Hameti not receiving the support that he might want and expect to have, um, you know, from from a country like the UAE. So I think that, you know, the the more it's already the conflict has already been internationalized to some extent. But I think that the the hope would be that especially if kind of the, you know, the, the, the less proximate countries, you know, if we talk about Saudi, UAE, um, you know, US, Europe, all that stuff, if, if they can kind of play a, a kind of a, a tempering role on the ambitions of the two generals, um, and I think Hamedti in particular, that might be an avenue for, for some progress. I think one thing I, I just want to add, because um, Josh, your comment kind of brought this to mind, 
is that I think that, you know, absolutely, and from the perspective of U.S. interests, our kind of, our objective right now is focusing on Khartoum, because that's where most of the internationals are, you know, that's where really the center of this fighting. I think that it's important, though, too, not to lose sight of kind of the long-term ramifications, or even the very near-term ramifications that this conflict is having in, in the more peripheral regions. We've seen a lot of fighting in the East already, and I think that there's a lot of reason to be worried about what will happen in Darfur. I think that, you know, you're absolutely correct what you said about the RSF having very poor command and control. And I think that generally, you know, within Khartoum and, and, and that kind of area, it, the SAF does have a much stronger uh, kind of command and control over its forces than the RSF does. But one of the worrying signs we've seen is that the, the SAF has actually gone on kind of a very rapid recruitment drive in Darfur in recent days to try to undercut uh, Hameti's kind of tribal base. He's recruiting from some of those same tribes that the RSF pulls from. And I think recruiting, I mean, in some instances, it sounds like it's really conscription. And so I think that, you know, there it's uh, those those fighters are not going to be ones that go through a typical, you know, six month basic training course. Right. These are essentially the, the military arming militias to fight the militias that are already there. So I think that, uh, you know, our, our immediate focus absolutely should be on kind of all those points that Rob addressed and just getting the the fighting to kind of come down to a, 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 a you know, into a bit of a lull, particularly within Khartoum. Um, you know, we also need to already start thinking about kind of what are going to be the long term ramifications for the more peripheral uh, regions of Sudan that have unfortunately been experiencing conflict for for many, many years. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and one of the frustrations that is always uh, the, uh, the case in these types of situations is that our information is really limited, uh, particularly, so we actually have decent information, not good, but okay information from Khartoum because we, we have things like Twitter and, and people still have access to their mobile phones and stuff. So there are some reports getting out of Khartoum, but there's almost nothing getting out of uh, places like Darfur and and the East that you mentioned and, and all over. So we have a real blind spot um, everywhere, including in Khartoum, but also, but especially I would say in these these peripheral areas. And one of the, the nightmare scenarios um, is a, a true balkanization of Sudan. I, I think that's, uh, you know, this is a longer term conversation and because uh, we, we are focused on the immediate fighting right now, but I think that is a real possibility, right? That um, these regions that have always had uncomfortable at best relations um, uh, with each other and within the body politic of Sudan, this may be what finally uh, carves them off. Um, who knows, right? But uh, I think that is one of the scenarios we have to think about. And um, very quickly, and then I wanna bring, bring Rob back in. Um, uh, so you mentioned Chad, uh, which I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, Chad is, is worried about this, this borderland because uh, they've had rebel groups that have arisen out of there and challenged uh, in Jamina. So uh, that, that's always a concern. And, and Hameti is actually from some of those tribes that, um, that have posed a challenge to, to the Chadian regime. Um, but you also have another major, major country here, Ethiopia, right? Which has, um, is watching with great interest, uh, I'm sure, what's going on in Sudan. So very quickly, uh, talk about Ethiopia for us and, and its relations with Sudan. Yeah, thanks, Josh. And that's a great point. I mean, obviously, you can't really talk about this with talking about Ethiopia. I think that, you know, the right one of the big contexts here is that there's this border dispute between Ethiopia and Sudan that kind of really flared up and then turned into some actual fighting during the kind of Ethiopian civil war that, that broke out in November 2020. There have also been this kind of this larger uh, kind of geopolitical issue over Ethiopia's construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, 
which has turned into a real flashpoint between Ethiopia and Cairo, um, but also kind of Sudan in, in, in recent years, especially kind of shifting kind of more into the Egyptian sphere in terms of having, you know, their opposition to the dam. I think that Ethiopia is actually a much trickier question to um, kind of to assess their position. And I think that Abiy, you know, himself has been relatively cautious here. I think that part of that is because the Ethiopian government is actually quite hard to read at this moment because there are a lot of competing interests there. And so, for example, I think that the, you know, position of say some of the, the powerful kind of Amharan politicians in the northern part of Ethiopia that share some of the border with Sudan are maybe kind of, you know, there have been reports or speculation that some of them, uh, you know, might be interested in kind of supporting the, the RSF as a way to kind of undercut Sudan over some of these, uh, these border disputes and kind of expand their own territory as like a state within Ethiopia, as kind of a, a federated state within Ethiopia. But I think there are also kind of a lot of you know, either competing or moderating influences within Ethiopia. Um, you know, the government, I mean, Ethiopia as a state's just in a very precarious moment right now. Um, so, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of this this question over the, the reintegration of the Tigray region into the country after what was, you know, a brutal kind of horrendous almost two-year war. Um, so for now, I think that, you know, from what we've seen, I think that Ethiopia is kind of, to the extent that we can talk about a coherent or cohesive foreign policy, They've been very focused on trying to prevent spillover um, and, you know, to try to play a mediating role. This is also something that Abiy, the, the prime minister, has kind of always had this ambition to be the regional peacemaker. And this was an ambition that was kind of, I think, very encouraged by, you know, Western powers for several years. And then when the war broke out, there was a bit of kind of chagrin that maybe, uh, you know, Abiy had been so kind of uh, lauded and stuff for, for this kind of regional peacemaking when he didn't have his own house in order. But I think that Abiy is kind of also uh, eager to, to kind of prove, you know, as, as maybe a sign that Ethiopia has moved on from this, this devastating internal war that is now ready to kind of assume more of a regional position. Um, and so, and so, I mean, they've released some statements on this already. I would not be surprised if, if Abiy tries to kind of play a very public mediating role between these two factions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, my, I would maybe end on, on a caveat, which for now is that actually Ethiopian foreign policy is maybe a bit trickier to read on this than, um, you know, some of these other countries, just because of the, the internal divisions that I think are still not kind of fully clear, even within, within Addis Ababa and within the country at large. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and it was, uh, the Sudanese armed forces that were primarily involved in the border conflict, um, with, with Ethiopia. So that, that's an interesting wrinkle here, but, uh, what that means in practical terms, I think we sort of have to wait and see uh, as far as what Ethiopia, uh, will do. So Rob, uh, let's finish up with you here. Um, we've got, we've got five minutes. Um, what should we be looking for from the U.S. government right now, as far as indications right, that, that it's moving in the right direction on evacuation with, with the seriousness and urgency that, that I think we, we all agree is, is required here. Um, and again, what are sort of the broad principles that someone sitting in the Situation Room right now or at the NSC or at State or whatever who is working on this should bear in mind, um, again, this is a uniquely Sudanese situation, but there are broader principles, I think, that um, you know, everyone should have front of mind as, as they work on this. Sure, and, and it was stated up front that there's a dynamic tension between uh, now, which is managing a crisis which has already occurred, um, and uh, sort of preventing the negative attention associated with it. And that's a hard thing to do because there's inevitably a requirement to manage both. 
but the reality is that we have U.S. persons unaccounted for and at risk, and that's got to be addressed, uh, and it's got to be addressed acutely, and it means you need to introduce the resources into the area to preserve the full range of options, and hopefully that is underway, and I think that is immediate. The second is there is, in fact, an opportunity to work to restore this to a positive trajectory. Look, two armies were never going to share Sudan. It was always going to be a managed transition. And as Jake stated earlier, was it going to be two years of assimilation or 10 years? The reality is we already picked a side. And I can see convergent interests, I think, uh, with uh, helping the Sudanese armed forces get to a situation to manage the security and get back on track to managing uh, the transition to uh, uh, incorporating civilian uh, rule in the government as a whole. And this is the opportunity to do it. And I think we need to work with our partners to reduce the foreign influence before it gets worse. What we don't want is a devolution that we saw in Libya and frankly in Yemen and other uh, regional areas uh, that I think serve no one's interest. So I think we need to prevent the external influence and the resources that are going to fuel conflict and instability and the balkanization that you are rightly warned against uh, at the outset, but it requires U.S. leadership, which means you have to elevate this um, beyond the level uh, that was previously managing the portfolio, and that at this point led to a crisis, unfortunately. And that means that we're going to have to put more capital at stake uh, in addition to resources. But that would allow us to bring in uh, our partners and allies that have different uh, but consistent goals and objectives, which, which frankly got us to the point where we managed to transition from Bashir to something else. And so now we're faced with a similar opportunity uh, during this crisis to put Sudan back on track, but we're gonna have to elevate it, we're gonna have to introduce additional resources, and we're gonna have to work more closely with partners uh, in the region. If we don't, everyone's gonna make their own decisions based on what they think is best for them. And uh, unfortunately, that seldom works out to anyone's advantage not the United States, not the individual countries, certainly not the long-suffering people of Sudan. Yeah, well said. Um, so we're, we're right at time here. So I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. There's, there's obviously, I mean, we could have talked for hours. This is um, such an, uh, uh, an interesting problem set. Um, but we also, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you made your, your final comment there about the people of Sudan, Rob, because uh, fundamentally, this is a tragedy for the Sudanese. Um, we, hundreds dead already, it's almost certainly more. We have no idea where this is going. Um, the trauma that people have already suffered. Um, uh, and it's all because, frankly, the selfishness of two men um, who have decided to to fight this out um, and um, no matter the uh, no matter the the consequences for the Sunnis people. So um, it's 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 bigger than these two men. Obviously, there's deep fundamental structural issues uh, within Sudan that have led to some of this as well. But um, you know, uh, but for now, um, you know, I think the U.S. seems to be laser focused on what do we do to help American citizens who are in danger and then, as you say, already be laying the groundwork for something that some sort of resolution to this where there can be um, stability and security in that country as daunting of a challenge as that is. So uh, thank you both uh, for your time. I thought this was really, really interesting and productive. Uh, maybe we'll have to do um, a reprise of this in a few days. It's such a dynamic situation um, that I'm sure there'll be developments uh, shortly that um, might require some further commentary. So uh, without further ado, we're right at time. So thank you both. Thank you, appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, thank you, Rob.